I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this this is Hashtag Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Okay, hi guys. So thank you so much for listening to Hashtag History. I wanted to start off this episode with a banger. It's an incident that is so widely known and so controversial and so relevant to today's society that it just can't be ignored. Even as widely known as it is, though, I'm always surprised to hear when someone tells me that they've never heard about it. But you, Leah, you've told me you are aware of the incident. To be honest, it's only because of the movie that came out like this last year. I haven't watched it, but um, (laughs) yeah, that's the only reason. That's the first time I actually heard about it. And I think that's like a huge thing. That's why this one is so interesting to me is because it did happen in the late 60s. And so like us, you know, people that are our age or even my parents would have been super young when it happened. So there's so many people that don't know about it, but it's so important. So I'm just going to cut to the chase and kind of quickly sum up what we're talking about today. So we are talking about the Chappaquiddick incident, which, yes, it is Chappaquiddick, which is a super funky name. And I remember the first time I heard about this incident, I had to like, I couldn't even figure out how to spell that word in order to put it into Google. But yeah, so it's called Chappaquiddick. And the reason why um, it's the Chappaquiddick incident is because that's where the incident occurred. It occurred on Chappaquiddick Island in Massachusetts on July 18th, 1969. In a nutshell, it's the case in which Senator Ted Kennedy drove his car off of a bridge into a pond and he escaped from the car while leaving his passenger inside to die. So, Leah, I'll go ahead and hand it over to you. <laughs> so I, this, this part feels kind of silly right after the, and then he left someone to die in his car. <laughs> right. right. But <laughs> just a little bit about the segment. Um, we wanted to do something a little different, so we thought it would be cool if we did uh, a segment where we pick and drink a cocktail that is somehow tied to the story we're diving into. Um, really, Rachel, you and I just look for any excuse to drink a good cocktail, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> so because we're diving into the Chappaquiddick scandal this episode, and I'm assuming a little bit of the Kennedy family, I thought we should take a closer look at the Rose Kennedy cocktail. Are, are you intrigued? I'm I'm beyond intrigued. All right. Do you have the cocktail in hand? Um yes, and it kind of looks like um a little bit like NyQuil, I'm not gonna lie. Oh. <laughs> 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 well let's be honest yeah let's be honest yours is going to taste better since I got the four dollar bottle of um, vodka so and the only reason why I have the nice vodka is because um I am marrying an angel and he went an and bought angel an angel and he <laughs> went and bought all of that for me yeah so 
for those who don't know, the Rose Kennedy is a cocktail popular in the mid-Atlantic and northeastern United States. It consists of varying amounts of vodka and club soda with a splash of cranberry juice mm. for color and taste. And to be honest, mine's half cranberry juice. Alex <laughs> 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 he said, how's it look? And because he had looked up some pictures online, it's supposed to be like this light pink drink. And he's like, why is it red? Yeah, yeah, I went heavy on the cranberry. Yes. <laughs> um, the cocktail typically garnished with a lemon or lime wedge, which I wasn't fancy enough to do that, were you? No, neither. No, okay. It's based on the Cape Cod and which is, I guess, another um, cocktail. And it's named after Rose Kennedy, who is the matriarch of the Kennedy family of Cape Cod and the mother of Ted Kennedy. So, yes, some fun facts. It's the low-carb alternative to the Cape Cod cocktail. And it's rumored to have gotten its name at Trumpets, which is a Washington, or was, I don't think it's still open, but it's a Washington, D.C. gay bar in the 1990s. Well, all right. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to try this thing? I am. Are you? Okay. Okay. Cheers. It'll it'll be good. Okay, here we go. Okay. (laughs) How much vodka did you put in yours? I put like a shot and a half in mine. Probably. When I looked it up online the ingredients it said two parts did you look up these same ones where it said two parts vodka I'm like what does what exactly does that mean I think that means two shots that that's what I was gonna go with um it tastes fine how does your yeah it tastes fine I think I usually like a little bit more of like I think the sweet like cranberry juice even without like vodka and stuff is a little like tart for me yeah but um it's not terrible it's cool yeah I think um I don't super love it just because it looks so much like NyQuil to me that (laughs) even when I even when I drink it I was like kind of expecting the NyQuil flavor I mean mine kind of does taste like NyQuil since I got three (laughs) dollar vodka well if it makes you feel any better I don't know that mine tastes much better okay well okay so let me go ahead let's dive back in thank you very much for that that was awesome and I will keep sipping on this as we're going through yeah if you Um, hear like my glass clinking that's what's happening (laughs) and mine is just gonna be like a really deep annoying like swallow sound that you'll hear (laughs) so yeah gross anyway so before we go any further um I did want to say something right up front no matter how much Leah or I joke around or we laugh about stuff or um, you know, we're having a good time talking about these cocktails and having a good time getting into the nitty gritty about history. The most important thing here and the thing that needs to be remembered and recognized is that a young woman lost her life as a result of this incident. 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny very sadly lost her life, and that is something we will never make a joke about nor forget while we're covering this case. So, as I was saying, this incident occurred on Chappaquiddick Island, Massachusetts, on July 18th, 1969. So, again, kind of what I was saying, that wasn't all that long ago. In fact, this year, it will be 50 years since that incident. And like I said, my parents would have been really young when it happened. But even when I told my dad that I was doing this podcast, you know, after I explained to him what exactly a podcast was, 
Um, I told him, you know, I'm doing a podcast about Ted Kennedy and about the Chappaquiddick incident. And he got all fired up and was screaming about (laughs) Ted Kennedy. He's a murderer. I was like, oh, my gosh, Dad. Okay. So needless to say, it has had significant ramifications that have lasted now 50 years. Mm -hmm. So there's a phrase that's been around for decades and it's known as the Kennedy curse. Have you heard that before Leah? You know, I don't know if I've ever actually heard it put into words, but it makes total sense. Yes. uh, Seeing as, you know, all the things that have happened. Yes. So that's exactly what I was going to say. It's a phrase that's been around for decades, but it's something that I can't say that I disagree with. Um, Sadly, there have been too many incidents of fatal plane crashes. Yes, there has been more than one in this one family. Um, Medical tragedies, drugs, suicide, and more to recount each and every one of them. But those tragedies are nearly overshadowed by the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy and, of course, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which, (laughs) just wait for a future episode on both of those. Mm -hmm. So so the Kennedy family, um, they faced some pretty devastating losses. And the person central to this story, the Chappaquiddick incident, he certainly felt the effects of those tragedies. Edward Moore Kennedy, known as Ted Kennedy in life, and I will also be referring to him as such in this episode, he was born on February 22nd, 1932, and any history nerds out there will catch on, or even not just history nerds, um, like school teachers or anyone that works in the school district, maybe you have this day off, so you also will recognize it. February 22nd was also George Washington's birthday, so... The fact that Ted Kennedy was born um, on his birthday is cool. In addition to that, February 22nd, 1932, the date year that Kennedy was born, that was actually Washington's 200th birthday, which I think for like such a political family, that's a pretty neat fact. I feel like that's <laughs> only something... I would Someone, that you you would appreciate yeah. one, one <laughs> and that you would make that connection like who are you Rachel <laughs> um a massive history nerd that's kind of geeking out right now that's All who right I am. Okay. so anyway anyway I digress Teach me your things Yes, here we go. So I, why I'm going into all of this, I just really want to lay the background and foundation of Ted Kennedy as a person. I think who he was as a person is really important to the whole story. So Ted was born the youngest of nine children, which anyone and everyone that comes from a big family can understand how tough that is. On top of that, Ted was moved around more than half a dozen times as a kid. By the age of 11, he had attended 10 schools. He proved himself to be somewhat of a poor student and was constantly compared to his older siblings. His diligence, or lack thereof, in school, it followed him into his college years. Following in the footsteps of his father and brother, he attended Harvard. While there, he became heavily involved in athletics but not so much in academics. Along with some of his classmates, they all worked together and they exchanged answers for a final exam in a science class. But then the mistake that officially got him was when he had a classmate of his stand in and take his Spanish test for him. How bold. At at Harvard. (laughs) 
yeah, oh, I'm not bold to do that. Yes. <laughs> Both he and the classmate were caught and they were expelled from the school for cheating. So as will become a pattern that you'll see throughout this whole episode, Ted's family made sure everything always worked out for him. He enlisted in the army, but his father, of course, intervened and made sure that he only served two years and that he was not deployed to the Korean War. And of course, just two years later, he was back at Harvard. He completed school, but only just barely. Because of his low grades, he was not accepted into Harvard Law, and instead he followed in his brother Robert's footsteps, and he went on to study at the University of Virginia School of Law, which that whole thing, it's too much to even talk about, but it's a controversy in and of itself. He barely got into the school because of his cheating history, and it was just a whole big thing, even getting his foot in the door. But regardless, he did it, albeit with a C average. Um, He graduated from law school in 1959. He was admitted to the bar the following year and right away began his political career assisting his brother, John F. Kennedy, with his presidential campaign. Okay, so that's laying the background of Ted Kennedy. Let's go ahead and fast forward. We're going back to 1969 and Chappaquiddick. So this was only 10 years later, and sadly, within literally 10 years, both John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, Ted's older brothers, were assassinated. The oldest Kennedy son, Joe Jr., was killed during World War II. So then, those next two brothers, they were both victims of assassination, which left Ted Kennedy as the last standing male heir, which sounds too dignitary to say the last standing male heir, but it's true and it's relevant to the Kennedy family. So just imagine the pressure of such a hugely political family um, that was raising such strong men in politics. And now you are all of a sudden the last one standing. So just the pressure of that, um, I know that it certainly had an effect on the baby of the family, Ted Kennedy. So after John F. Kennedy's assassination, um, Robert Kennedy, he started his own campaign for the presidency. There were a number of women who served on his 1968 presidential campaign, of course, you know, before he was assassinated. And one of those women was Mary Jo Kopechny. So before I go any further, um, I can feel my woman power feminist coming out And I need to address something that is so inaccurately reported. At the time of the incident, and still today, Mary Jo Kopechny is often referred to rather simply as the secretary. She was so much more than that. Kopechny was an extremely accomplished woman. She graduated with a business degree and worked on both JFK's campaign and that of a Florida senator before working on Robert Kennedy's campaign. She helped write his speeches and gathered important campaign information. And beyond just her professional role, her role in the Kennedys' lives extended to a personal level. She was there at the Ambassador Hotel on June 5th, 1968, when Robert Kennedy was assassinated and was even on the funeral train alongside the family and friends of the Kennedys um, that transported his body back to Arlington Cemetery. 
So Kopechny and five other single women, all in their 20s, they were all known as the boiler room girls for the windowless room that they all worked in together on Robert's campaign. They were all invited to a reunion-type party at Sidney Lawrence's cottage. Um, so Sidney Lawrence, he was a lawyer in Chappaquiddick that he would rent out his cottage to the Kennedy family. So remember, there are six single women at this party, and then there are also six men at the party, including Ted Kennedy, and then two other names I'm going to want you to remember, Leah. The two other names, um, there's Joseph Gargan, that's Kennedy's cousin, and Paul Markham, who was the former U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. And by former, I mean literally like six months before this incident, he was the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. So I think it's important to note that all of these men were married, with the exception of Kennedy's 63-year-old chauffeur, who was also <laughs> in attendance. I just think that's important to note, like, hey, we're all having this house party with six young single women and pretty much six married men, with the exception mm -hmm. of the chauffeur. Sounds and very 60s to me. Yes. In addition to that, Kennedy's wife was also pregnant at the time. So they're all hanging around, they're drinking, they're having a party. And according to Kennedy's report, he decides around 11.15 p.m. to leave the party. Apparently, Kopechny then tells him she's ready to leave too. According to Kennedy, and I'm using air quotes here, Kopechny asked him if he wouldn't mind taking her back to the hotel and that that was the only reason they both disappeared from the party at the same time. So I'm calling BS because <laughs> Kennedy had asked, he had to ask for the keys to the car because remember, he has a chauffeur that drove him around. And then... On top of that, Kopechny left both her purse and, of all things, her hotel key back at the party house. How exactly was she going to leave and be taken to her hotel, which is what Kennedy reported? He said, you know, she wasn't feeling well. She was ready to leave at the same time I was. I was going to take her either back to her hotel or take her to the ferry so she could go to her hotel. How is that even a possibility when she left both her purse and her hotel key back at the cottage but anyway from what I've read at least one person did indeed witness them leave together um, but everyone in official court documents has reported that neither Kennedy nor Kopechny actually told anyone that they were leaving So I'll cut to the chase. Kennedy says he was driving himself and Kopechny to the ferry building, but he took a wrong turn at Dyke Road, which is odd since he was familiar with his surroundings and should have known where he was going. In fact, there is evidence that he drove over Chappaquiddick Road three times that day alone and even drove over Dyke Road and Dyke Bridge twice earlier that day. Anyway, he makes a wrong turn. He ends up going towards Dyke Bridge. Per his account, just before he reached the bridge at approximately 20 miles per hour, he applied his brakes, lost control, and the car took off over the side of the bridge, which was not fitted with a guardrail back in 1969. The car plunged into the water, flipping upside down. 
So according to Kennedy, and I feel like I'm saying that a lot, like in air quotes, according to Kennedy, (laughs) but according to him, he was able to escape from the car, although he can't remember how. And he states that he dove back down seven or eight times to assist Kopechny, but to no avail. Due to exhaustion, he then rested on the bank for about 15 minutes before walking back to Lawrence's cottage where the party was still going on. So, so I how think far, yeah. how far was the cottage? The cottage, they, they say it was like a couple miles away. So just leisurely walking back to the cottage, no big deal. Yeah, like, so I think it was like a mile and a half is what I've read. Um, right, but even more absurd than that. So we're going to assume here that he's telling the truth about attempting several times to assist Kopechny. And it literally physically pains me to say this because... 15 minutes is so critical and so excruciatingly long for someone in such a dire situation. But I'm even going to give Kennedy the benefit of the doubt that those 15 minutes were necessary for resting, having just exerted as much energy as he did, diving in and out of the water, and truly just reeling from the shock of what happened. What I cannot excuse, though, is the fact that Kennedy did not immediately run for help. He claims he saw no houses on his way back to the party, which, like you said, just leisurely walking back over a mile (laughs) back to this cottage. Um, So he says he didn't see any houses on his way back. But in fact, he passed four houses along Dyke Road on his way back. And even more than that, Sylvia Malm, we'll talk about her later, Um, She lived in a house literally called Dyke House because it sat only 150 yards from Dyke Bridge. She says she was home that night and she even had a light on. So, Leah, I'm going to have you look at the picture that I sent over um, of the Dyke House and the Dyke Bridge. And I want you to kind of describe it to me. Okay. I feel like there's a lot of pressure on me right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's a black and white picture. You can see um, you can see the bridge. It looks like just an old wooden bridge. You, there's actually like a marking showing where the tire marks and gouges are on the side where the car obviously went off the side there. And I would say uh, maybe a hundred yards, mm-hmm. at, like a hundred yards in the distance is the dike house. Yes. And you tell me if you were walking on that road, if you would see the house or not. Uh, yes. I, I am saying yes too, because it was literally right there. And do you also notice how close the house is to the actual road? Yeah. Like it's, it's on the road. Back, It's on the road. Like, I'm not really sure. So he had to take that path back to the cottage. How is it possible that he did not see that house? Especially since you said she left the light on. Like, I just don't, if it's dark out, you're going to gravitate towards light if you're just stumbling around in the dark, right? Yes. And also, wouldn't you gravitate towards anything that would present itself as an option to help you in a situation? Like, if I feel like if he were actually looking for help, he would have found it. The very first initial response should have been to go racing for help. And yet Kennedy walked right past four potential options for help. 
I'm trying to understand his mindset in that moment, but no matter how many times or ways that I look at it, I just can't rationalize or justify it. And I think it boils down to this. The horrible but simple answer is that he didn't want help. He didn't want to report the incident. He didn't want to call attention to what he had done. And therefore, he let Mary Jo Kopechny die. So... Kennedy, he makes it back to the cottage, and do you remember those two names that I told you to remember? Um, no, but I will once you say them. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, but you're not going to pass the final exam. Uh, those two names, you're going to hear them a lot. You'll remember them soon. The two names, they are Joseph Gargan and Paul Markham. Oh, so yes, I remember is... Gargan because, like, gargling water. That's what I think of. Okay. Yeah. So this is where they become really important. So the party's still going on when Ray LaRosa, who was one of the attendants at the party, which I would also like to add that LaRosa was a former fireman and had not been drinking that day. He tells Gargan that Kennedy's outside and wants to speak to him. So Kennedy bypasses the very first person he sees, which is La Rosa. La Rosa is the very person that could have saved Kopechny. And instead, Kennedy asks La Rosa, hey, can you go get my buddy for me? So, and I think that just, again, goes to, like, it's clear and obvious that Kennedy was not looking for help. So Gargan goes outside. He sees Kennedy sitting in a car. As he's getting into the car, Kennedy tells him, hey, you better go get Paul, too. So eventually, Gargan, Markham, and Kennedy, they're all in the car when Markham asks what's going on. Gargan later recalled that Kennedy rather simply told them there had been an accident, that the car had gone off the bridge down by the beach, and that Mary Jo Kopechny was inside the car. Gargan remembers that Kennedy didn't appear to be particularly distressed. Rather, he was pretty factual about what had happened. And speaking of being factual, Kennedy did admit then and there that he had been the one driving the car. That's important to note because that's going to come up later. So Gargan's first thought is, of course, to get to Dyke Bridge as soon as possible. The three men peel off towards the road, and both Gargan and Markham are shocked to see that the car was flipped upside down in the middle of the water. There's a quote from Gargan that I'm going to read. It's about him basically calculating just how much time must have passed since the crash. He said, My timing was based on the fact that the senator had left the cottage, then come back. I knew from the distance he traveled that at least an hour to 45 minutes had to have elapsed from the time of the accident to the time that we got back to the bridge. Having calculated all that, Gargan truthfully and sadly had no expectation that Kopechny would still be alive. Regardless, he positioned the car so that the headlights were shining on the water, and then he and Markham stripped and jumped in the water together to attempt to save Kopechny. Gargan later explained their attempts really well, but it's a lot to go into now. So basically, just to sum it up, it was impossible. The current kept dragging him away from the car, in addition to making it impossible to keep his eyes open. Also keep in mind that all of these men had been drinking, which obviously did not help the situation. So from what I've read of Gargan's and Markham's attempts to reach Kopechny, To me, it does sound like they really did try. 
It was simply impossible. They resurfaced and climbed out of the water to meet Kennedy, who had been observing from the bridge, you know, just hanging out up there while his friends are trying to save the life of the woman that he killed. And so (laughs) as they're redressing, Gargan says, and I quote, I had one thing in mind at the time, and that was to report the accident. I didn't say that when I was dressing, but I was thinking what happened had to be reported immediately. Not in terms of calling the fire department or making another rescue attempt. There was nothing to rescue. The thing was over. That to me is like so sad because that shows me that they had figured out in their minds at that point that Kopechny was dead. And that's just really, really devastating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you just taking a drink when you did that? Could you tell because of the gargle? Yeah, you're like, mm-hmm. yeah. Not the gargon, the gargle. <laughs> okay so they get back in the car and they start heading towards the ferry landing where gargan not gargle and markham they believe they can use the public telephone to call the police all of a sudden kennedy starts coming up with all these grand schemes you know, perhaps, how about we tell people that Kopechny was alone in the car, that she maybe she had been driving, or he suggested to Gargan, you know, maybe you could just happen upon the site of the incident and discover it, report it to police, and then tell them that Kopechny had been alone. So both Gargan and Markham, they immediately reject this proposal. They weren't about to lie about what happened, especially when all the girls back at the cottage knew that Kopechny and Kennedy had left together. They knew there was no way that they could convince all those girls to stay quiet about what had really happened. Besides, Gargan explained later on, that when the three men were out at the bridge attempting to reach Kopechny, they hadn't exactly been quiet about it. They had been screaming back and forth to one another, and the lights from the car were on, lighting up the whole area. So they had no idea at that time if someone had seen or heard them and if that person could potentially place Ted Kennedy at the scene. So Gargan suggested Kennedy call Burke Marshall, who was, according to Robert Kennedy, the best lawyer he knew. Gargan also tried to convince Kennedy to call his mother, Rose. Thank you, Rose Kennedy, for this cocktail that we are Mm -hmm. drinking. This nasty (laughs) cocktail. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Rose. Gargan, he tries to convince Kennedy to call his mom, Rose, and let her know what happened because she had found out about both her son, John's, and Robert's assassinations on the radio. Can you even imagine that? No. And so, in this case, Gargan didn't want her to hear about Ted Kennedy's accident in a similar manner. But, so Kennedy, he wasn't having any of it. When they reached the ferry landing, Kennedy basically told Gargan he's sick of his nagging and that he had had enough. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He told Gargan, you know, don't worry about anything. I'm going to take care of it. Those were his words. Um, I'm going to take care of it. And all that he needed from Gargan was to go back to the cottage and not upset nor involve the girls. And with that, Kennedy got out of the car and dove into the water. (laughs) Like... And even, like, firsthand accounts that Gargan and Markham have later stated were, like, just as shocked as we are right now hearing that. They both were like, what? He literally got out of the car, 
dove into the water and just started swimming away. So Gargan, he later stated about Kennedy's sudden departure. He said um, that hadn't been discussed in advance. The senator merely left. Their conversation was cut short. Even still, Gargan felt certain he had, he, Gargan is Kennedy's cousin. He had known Kennedy for a very, very long time. And he felt confident that Kennedy would take care of the situation like he said he would. And that he would report the accident once he swam to the mainland. Once and he swam was- to the mainland. <laughs> right. So, he like, swam. that is just totally ridiculous. Like, hey, I'm sick of your nagging. I'm going to hop out of this car and I'm just going to swim across this pond now. Bye. Bye. See ya. Bye. So, Gargan and Markham, they return to the cottage. And at this time, it's, it's right around 2.30 a.m., And they found that the party had pretty much died down at that point. While Markham was settling in, Gargan fielded questions from the girls. He lied and told them that Kennedy and Kopechny were fine, that they had taken the last ferry of the night, and he encouraged them all to stay the night and get some rest. In truth, Gargan needed the girls to sleep at the cottage that night. If any of them left and went back to their motel, they would quickly see that Kopechny had never made it back there herself. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to our first ever episode of Hashtag History. If you enjoyed this bad boy, be sure to tell your friends and be sure to join us next week as we dive deeper into the aftermath of the Chappaquiddick scandal.